Hi, this is Pastor Emily McGinley from Urban Village Church, Hyde Park, Woodlawn. If you've been to UVC, you'll know that we seek to be three things, bold, inclusive, and relevant. We know that there are countless folks across the country and out there in podcast land like yourself, seeking a message that will bring insight, hope, encouragement, and joy as we do this thing called faith. Please consider making a financial gift to help us with this work of inspiring, equipping, and sending out agents of gospel life and inclusive love. Just go to www.urbanvillagechurch.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening, and God bless. Our passage today comes from Luke 24, verse 1 through 12. Listen for what God is saying to you. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, the women went to the tomb, bringing the fragrant spices they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. They didn't know what to make of this. Suddenly, two men were standing beside them in gleaming bright clothing. The women were frightened and bowed their faces toward the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He isn't here, but he has been raised. Remember what he told you while he was still in Galilee, that the human one must be handed over to sinners, be crucified, and on the third day, rise again. Then they remembered his words. When they returned from the tomb, they reported all these things to the eleven and all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. Their words struck the apostles as nonsense, and they didn't believe the women. But Peter ran to the tomb. When he bent over to look inside, he saw only the linen cloth. Then he returned home, wondering what had happened. May God add a blessing to our hearing and understanding of this reading from Scripture. So thank you again, Tara, for that beautiful testimony. And thank you, Urban Village Church, for being the kind of community that can help someone like Tara know God's resurrection love in an undeniable way. Her testimony is confirmation that God is doing something here within us and among us and through us. It is a beautiful privilege to be your pastor, to help create this container of grace that we all call church. Let us pray. Good and gracious and fearfully loving God, we thank you for this morning when we can remember and celebrate the center of your power, which is the ability to breathe life into what everyone took for, get, for dead, to call forth possibility when all seems hopeless, to inspire action in those places of apathy. Come now, Holy Spirit, and do your thing, your thing. Breathe life, call forth possibility, inspire action, so that this world may know your transformative power and resurrection. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So many of you know that I have a younger brother. I'm about four years older than him, which doesn't really mean much now, but early in life it meant a great deal. And most of our childhood, I had the leg up on him when it came to tricks and kind of dastardly sibling maneuvers. And one of the things that I would do, which actually worked several times, was getting him to admit things that he had done in order to hold it over him as blackmail. I'm saved now, so don't worry about it. Uh, for example, he went through a phase uh, when he was about three or four when he would pick gum off the street and chew it. And of course, my parents would yell at him and tell him that he should definitely not do that. 
but he really, really liked candy, and we were never allowed to have any, and so this was basically the only way he was going to get any. So one day he was chewing something, and I had a feeling, so I asked him, where did you get that gum? And of course, he hesitated, and I said in a poisonously soothing voice, don't worry, I won't tell. And of course, when he shared that he had, once again, picked the gum off the sidewalk, I jumped to my feet, flush with power, and declared that I would tell our parents. Of course, he was desperate. He would do anything to keep me from telling my parents. Anything? Well, of course, <laughs> we could arrange something, I'm sure. <laughs> and that's how he came to be called Cinder Danny. For about a year, he was my personal servant. And after a while, he got wise to my ways and stopped believing me when I would say, don't worry, I won't tell. The thing is, he wanted to believe what I, that I meant what I said, that he could trust me and that I could hold him in his confidence. But what I was looking for was leverage and power, and maybe also an opportunity to enjoy watching him squirm a little bit. It probably took him a while, actually, to trust me again, to believe that I really was on his side. It's hard to have confidence in someone after being really disappointed. And in a way, maybe this is why the disciples, minus Peter, refused to believe the women when they came back with this strange and spectacular story about Jesus' missing body and their encounter with the angels. Maybe they had become so bitterly disappointed. Three days is enough time for things to sink in. So disillusioned with what had gone down that they weren't willing to risk getting their hopes up again for another crushing blow. Better to pick up and move on. Safer to be cynical than stick your neck out again, right? And risk getting played a second time. Or maybe it was the messengers. Sure, they'd come to know these women, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and, and the other women, as much more than a bunch of women. They had traveled together, eaten together, struggled together to understand what Jesus was saying and doing. But you know how women can be. Emotional, because of the periods. Weak, because of the baby having. And gullible, because of the no education. I mean, we know that credibility has more to do with your outward appearance, conforming to norms, and social hierarchy than actual credibility, right? Or maybe it just felt safe and right to stick with what they knew, rather than entertain the thought of something so crazy, so out there as resurrection. I mean, if they were, even if they were hardcore Walking Dead fans, for which there might be some historical evidence, you really have to draw the line between reality and fantasy somewhere, right? And I actually think that this, that it was safer to stick with what you know, that this might be the rightest, most right, likeliest reason for their response. Because if it were true, if it were true, that requires a radical reorientation of just about all the things that you knew were solid and real. Like when someone dies, they stay dead. Because here's the thing, if you have to radically reorient the things that you thought were solid and true, then that means all the things that you thought were solid and true can be radically reoriented. <laughs> and that's really scary. The implications, the ripple effect of if this isn't true, then how can this be true? Or if this is true, 
then maybe this is true. Who wants that? The late New Testament scholar N.T. Wright talks about several shifts from Jewish thought around the idea of resurrection among early Christians. So one of these shifts was in the timeline of resurrection. It wasn't that Jews thought that resurrection didn't happen. Remember, these early Christians are actually Jews, right? So it wasn't that Jews thought that resurrection didn't happen, especially among people who died for, faith, for their faith. They just thought like it happened later on, like later, you know? And that everyone resurrected all at the same time. And so in the meantime, there was this kind of long tradition of songs and prayers and rituals to help you kind of mourn the loss of someone who was very powerful and special in the faith. So when Jesus died, all of his followers were feeling really sad about it. And there was a place in their faith. There was a process in their faith for that kind of mourning. Other Jews might have been like, yeah, you know, sorry to hear about your man Jesus. Here's a prayer book to get you through. But, and here's the shift. Jesus' followers were like, no, you're not getting it. The dude isn't dead anymore. He's already resurrected. There's no waiting for later. Later is now. And it's about this point when all those other folks start getting that look on their faces and start slowly backing away. <laughs> Yo, uh, we didn't, don't have any prayers and rituals for that. <laughs> and that's when you realize we are in uncharted territory. So, okay. If dead people don't stay dead, if this Jesus guy is for real, God's son or whatever, what does all of that mean? What does it mean if I was following the dude and totally down with the cause and he's de he was dead and now he's resurrected? Like, what does that mean for me? You know what? I'm not going to go there. It's been real. Back to fishing, which is basically what some of his disciples did. The thing about resurrection is that it's crazy. It's crazy and it's scary. Think about it, really. What if Martin Luther King Jr. had not died? I mean, what if he had resurrected? Did you know that he was shifting his focus away from civil rights to focus on the anti-war movement and um, to focus on economic inequality? What if King had resurrected? What would his followers and supporters have had to grapple with knowing that even death would not hold him down. And he wanted to take this thing further into places that felt really uncomfortable. That means we really have to do this, for real. But because King did die and did not resurrect, it allows everyone to celebrate a national holiday and say nice things about him and then keep on moving. Resurrection is scary because it threatens our apathy. It means we don't have the excuse of death to hold us back. And yes, even death can be an excuse. In fact, I'd say resurrection is maybe even scarier than death, at least when you look at it from the pre-resurrection side of things. Think about what Tara shared. She said she experienced a year of slowly dying, of letting go of all the things that made up her life and even her identity. It was probably a mix of good and bad stuff, things that she was glad to be rid of, but in a weird way, there is comfort in familiarity, in knowing the way things go. And then if you make the leap, 
right? There's this time of free fall, of transition, that time between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, Good Saturday, which is only good if you're not the one who was descending into hell. When you're swinging between branches and that moment that you've let go of the one behind you and haven't quite caught the one in front of you, that feeling. The thing about resurrection is that it is threatening. It gets rid of our escape hatch. Death can be an escape hatch, right? But now there's no escape hatch. (laughs) Resurrection has taken it away. It threatens our sense of safety. It threatens our sense of comfort. It threatens the carefully constructed realities that make us feel like we are in control. We are threatened by the resurrection of Jesus because it means that what he was doing on earth, what he was proclaiming on earth, what he was enacting on earth is for real. He wasn't playing. He's for real. So all the people who call themselves, all the people who call ourselves followers of Jesus, we also have to be for real. Think of the most death-filled, hopeless, apathetic places of your life. Think of it, of yourself. Maybe it's around addictions or compulsions. The effort of reconciling with someone else, or maybe yourself even. Maybe it's the feeling that you're all alone in everything. A feeling that has kind of ended up becoming a sort of shell of protection for you. Think of the most death-filled, hopeless, apathetic places of this world. The generation's long disregard for justice and inequality for the city. The babies washing up on shores or being blown apart in Europe. In the Middle East, little boys being recruited for soldiers in Africa and little girls disappearing whole schoolhouses at a time. Easter says that even in those places and spaces, in all of those circumstances and systems, somehow, some way, life is possible. Not because Jesus is going to magically appear and make it all better. No, because Jesus' followers, you and I, are no longer allowed to think that death can stop from breathing life into those places. The ugliest, most painful, most joyless places of this world, of our lives. Resurrection messes with our pretty pastel Easter dresses and patent leather shoes, our dyed eggs and chocolate bunnies, all of which I have participated in. (laughs) Resurrection changes everything because resurrection threatens everything. Resurrection will threaten the stability of your framework, of our framework. It creates a rupture in our minds that allows for the impossible. Are you ready for the impossible? Are you ready for the improbable? Are you ready for the incredible, the illogical, the unthinkable? Are you ready for the unparalleled, the unconceivable, the extraordinary, the implausible? Are you ready for the unimaginable, the exceptional, the marvelous, the phenomenal, the outstanding, the astounding, the remarkable? Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you frightened? You should be. But of course, it's not only Jesus' resurrection that threatens us. It's all of those who have gone before us, who have walked that resurrection reality, who have risked life and limb and hope and courage to move us, creep us, scrape us closer and closer to that gospel vision, that ancient intention, wholeness of life for all. 
We answer to those movers, to those creepers, those scrapers who shed blood and love, who have walked a mile on broken toes so that we could get here on this Sunday morning to keep the movement moving, to push that vision forward. We pray with those people every time we approach this communion table. We walk with those people every time we march with palms in our hands, proclaiming truth to power, holding signs in our hands, declaring that black lives matter, that public student, school students matter, that we, we walk with those who have gone before us when we mark our foreheads with ashes on the street corners to celebrate our humanity and our connection with creation. We are threatened with resurrection everywhere. We threaten this world with resurrection. Everywhere we are, we threaten this world with resurrection. We dance, we sing, we clap our hands, we gather around food and scripture and silly jokes, joyful, fearful, hopeful, anxious, and powerful because of resurrection. Brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, friends on the resurrection journey, today and every day, we proclaim our allegiance to Jesus Christ. And it's a reminder that we are threatened with resurrection and that we threaten this world with resurrection. It isn't those that in the streets that keep us from resting, my friend. It is something within us that doesn't let us sleep, that doesn't let us rest, that won't stop pounding deep inside. It is the silent, warm weeping of Indian women without their husbands. It is the sad gaze of the children fixed somewhere beyond memory, precious in our eyes, which during sleep, though closed, keep watch. A whole army witness to our pain, our fear, our courage, our hope. What keeps us from sleeping is that they have threatened us with resurrection because every evening the weary of killings, yet we go on loving life and do not accept their death. They have threatened us with resurrection because we have felt, in, <clears throat> felt their inert bodies and their souls penetrated ours, doubly fortified because in this marathon of hope, there are always others to relieve us who carry the strength to reach the finish line which lies beyond death. They have threatened us with resurrection because they will not be able to take away from us their bodies, their souls, their strength, their spirit, nor even their death, and least of all, their life. Because they live today, tomorrow, and always. They have threatened us with resurrection because they are more alive than ever before. Because they transform our agonies and fertilize our struggle. Because they pick us up when we fall. Because they loom like giants. They have threatened us with resurrection. That is the whirlwind which does not let us sleep. The reason why sleeping we watch and awake we dream. No, it is not the street noises. It's the internal cyclone, a kaleidoscopic struggle. It is the earthquake soon to come that will shake the world and put everything in its place. Join us in this vigil, and you will know what it is to dream. Then you will know how marvelous it is to live threatened with resurrection. Let's join our voices for these last lines. To dream, dream awake, awake, to, to keep, keep watch, sleep, sleep, to, to live, live while dying. dying. And, and to, to know, know ourselves already, already resurrected. Let us pray. God of the impossible, of the improbable, of the implausible, 
Today you have again threatened us with resurrection. Help us to dream awake. Help us to keep watch while sleeping. Help us to live while dying and know ourselves by the power of your love and the strength of your grace to know ourselves already resurrected. Amen.